Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the Reconciliation March of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. I'm here today with Alison and Bridget. Um, Alison, Bridget, thank you for joining us on the UX Australia podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I'll start with you, Bridget. Whereabouts are you joining us from today? I'm on uh, Waiwata on Monday, so I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the beautiful space that I'm in today uh, and the magpies that angelars and lorikeets that are hanging around my garden. So if you see my eyes ripping, that's what it is. <laughs> lovely, lovely. I've visited Bar- uh, Ballarat a couple of times. I think only, um, but it's a lovely, a lovely, lovely part of the world. It is. It is. It's a nice place to be. Wonderful. And how about yourself, Alison? Uh, I'm on Wurundjeri country today. Uh, I'm in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and all of uh, Swinburne's campuses in Australia are on Wurundjeri country, so I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of uh, those lands. Wonderful. I today am on uh, Gadigal land um, in Sydney. I, I would normally be coming to you from Wonga land on the shores of the Parramatta River, um, just west of here. Uh, it's a little bit wet and a little bit soggy on Wonga land, um, and I, I find myself in the in the CBD today. So, um, can you tell me? Uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic that you're talking about at Design Research, um, which is only a couple of weeks away now, I realised this morning, um, talking about, um, you know, undertaking design research with uh, dementia in, in mind. Can you, like, don't tell me the, the presentation because that's coming and, <laughs> that, you know, like, spoiler alert, but, I mean, that, that's a fascinating idea of how we engage with people you know, thinking about the role or the purpose of design research with an audience um, with dementia. Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of very specific things uh, when it comes to doing research with people living with dementia that may not apply as much if you're doing research with other populations. Uh, so some of the things that we had to take into consideration from the very start are some of the ethical considerations that you may not meet in other contexts. Um, so just for example, with that, um, you know, we had to consider are the people capable of giving consent to participate in the research? And by the nature of the, um, of the condition, 
do they need to reconsent each time we see them? Because sometimes people have good days and bad days. Now, our research also was to look at the application of technology as the way to support people living with dementia. And so many people are diagnosed now and many people want to continue living in the home. Um, and there's many technologies available. So what are the ones that are most suitable? Um, and that leads to a, a whole other uh, um, suite of issues that might be in place for particular people uh, living with dementia, such as um, often most of the people we spoke to were living at home with a support person who helped them day to day. Um, so, you know, you would have to consider them as a dyad, if you like, two people rather than one person and consider the needs of both people. Um, Bridget, what else What else do you, would you have to add? Yeah, the other side of that is us bringing ourselves as researchers into the process and thinking about our assumptions and biases, any um, potential stigma that we thought we understood and may not have understood that needed to be made explicit within our process before we even thought about everything. In fact, well, it got, it to everything that, it got us to everything that Alan just said, but we had to make that almost an in-tandem part of the process, not just for scoping the research, but then thinking about the overall, like the methodology um, and our philosophical approach to this, uh, coming at it from, or I won't say co-design, uh, mm. but it was acknowledging the possibility of co-design as well as participating in design activity. But also knowing that we were not doing this as a top-down expert researcher. We, were, we had very, very specific experts uh, in the people that we were, were working with. And we considered everyone someone that we worked with. Uh, we were all very insistent uh, in, in the language that we used, the way people uh, and their roles uh, and their, their capabilities were articulated within that research. And whilst we're talking about dimensions specifically, this is something that comes up a lot of the time in, in research projects, but how people give consent and what the responsibilities on the researcher and that ethics process because we're coming from the university. Uh, we, we know that it all sounds a little bit... <sighs> <laughs> a bit over enthusiastic in terms of our ethics, but we have to because we have yeah. our responsibility and our complicity in that process. Yeah, we've we've heard a lot over. I don't know, I want to say the last sort of, you know, decade or two about Australia's ageing population. How much more prevalent is dementia in the community? I, I, I get the sense that it's it's an increasing thing. Um, how much more prevalent is it? Uh, well, the the figures that I have here from Dementia Australia are that there are approximately four hundred and seventy two thousand Australians living with dementia. Um, but further to that, when I mentioned that many of the people we uh, investigated this project with were living at home with a support person, there are around 1.6 million people in Australia who are involved with the care of people living with dementia. So uh, this isn't just an issue that impacts the people living with dementia, it, it affects the broader community as well. And it also depends on the kind of dementia. It's not at all singing or dancing, cover everything turn. Yeah, I was going to get to that, yeah. Yeah, there are different dimensions to it and, and different. there are different impacts on the people who are diagnosed with, with the disease, as well as the conditions for the people who are in those support roles. 
and the support roles can be immediate, they can be in a broader proximity, it can get to a point where you're actually looking at that, that village approach where a, a community, a coffee shop, um, a, a bus driver can be part of that extended community of care, which is not in that one and a half million that Arnie's just talked about. And one of the great things is that people are living with dementia for longer, with um, mm. uh, medicines available now. Um, it, you know, it, it's not uh, something where people, you know, uh, pass early as they may have done going back 20 years. It's really important for people to get uh, medical diagnosis and intervention early on because it can prolong their life and also it can stave off the um, the progression of the condition as well. So that also means there are more people living in the community with dementia and that's actually a good thing because they have a longer lifespan and they're capable of enjoying life for longer. And again, extends the earlier intervention to earlier support for yes. the caring community around them. Because that is part of the part of the experience of dementia is is the person who experiences it themselves internally as well as the impacts in that external community. So the earlier the the diagnosis and the potential for intervention, the better the outcome for everyone. And our research specifically was looking at people in the early stages of dementia, early to mid stages, um, to help them stay living in the home for longer which a lot of people do want. Yeah, the, I mean, I think there's a general trend in care more broadly towards um, wanting to stay in the home, um, to have that um, care delivered um, in that familiar environment, um, in the home, whether it's aged care services, disability care services, um, like, that, that seems to be a, a broad trend away from residential care. Yeah, and it's not always the answer. We know that in design there is always more than one answer. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. whilst it might be an idealised outcome uh, for many, it's not an ideal outcome for some. Yeah. And we I think need to the... be aware of that in, in these kinds of discussions, that, that again, that one-size-fits-all around approaches and 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 care in the home um aging in place it's not it's not always applicable yeah we've um i don't think we do well as a society um asking these questions um you know like i i, I think we really struggle in how we ask them, like whether we're willing to confront some of these topics at all. And, and I say that broadly as a, as a society rather than, you know, like at specific individuals. Obviously, you yourselves are quite happy um, and, and quite capable of, of tackling these issues. But I think there's, there's a range of issues as a society around care um, that we really struggle to, to ask or address. I'm sorry, Ali, I'm going to jump in, but I'd just like to say that we... We are really humble about this. We're much better at it now than when we first started working in these areas. We didn't just jump into this project or even previous projects with any kind of dexterity and expertise. This is learned through practice. Mm-hmm. And I would really like to emphasise that we are still learning. Um, there are things that we could probably do better as we would go through this. Well, not probably. We would be able to do things better. 
um, with, with more knowledge uh, and, and more, uh, again, dexterity. Um, but that means we see the build again. Ali, sorry. Oh, I absolutely uh, agree entirely. And um, I, I actually don't know that I, as an individual, am in a better place to answer these questions. They are so individual um, because, and that's one of the things that came about in the research, that not only are there so many different types of dementia, often there's also uh, what is, you know, clinically called a comorbidity involved or another yeah medical condition. Um, there's lifestyle considerations, there's individual interests, there's there's so many things. And then, of course, you've got the family also with their individual um, situations. Uh, I honestly, if, if it were, if I were in the position that a lot of the people who were participating in the research were in, I don't know if I would have the answer because there's no one right answer. And when we're talking about these issues of care, um, dementia actually uh, complicates things in that by the time the person moves into residential care, are they capable of creating new routines easily? Um, yeah. You know, we, we all hear of the, the situations where someone then is, you know, waiting at a, a there's been some residential care places that create faux bus stops where a person can sit and wait because they think they're going home, which is just heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But, you know, these are the things that you have to weigh up be between someone wanting to stay as long as they can in the home and then, you know, at what point is it right to go into residential care so that that becomes the home? Um, there is no right answer. And I, I guess that's something, if anyone's listening to this podcast who is in that situation, you know, be gentle with yourself because there is no easy answer. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually a really uh, emotional experience for all of us as a team, not only having the privilege of going to people's homes and being able to talk about their experiences, their needs, their, their wants and their hopes, uh, but also being able to study that with the intention of providing support in, in another way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I get more size when I talk about this uh, because it was an incredible privilege to be given that opportunity at a practical and a you know, research level, but at a human level as well, uh, such that uh, when, as I've, I have family who um, have not had dementia, uh, my grandmother did, uh, and so I was able to be, re I declared it up front with uh, the, the participants and their families but it meant that there was a conversation we could have, not me personally, but a conversation that we as researchers could have because we were genuinely using empathy not as a tool but as a, as a fundamental part of our process yeah. um, and acknowledging that empathy was only going to go so far, uh, which was a big part of the process as well. Empathy is, is not a method in itself. It is just part of that process. Uh, I wanted, it, yeah, sorry. No, you're, uh, I, I, I wanted to ask... Um, about your like whether there were specific practices of self-care that you undertook during the research i mean um like all all research um is uh like effectively a, a shared space of vulnerability and you know we we create this space and make ourselves vulnerable at the same time that we allow the vulnerability or create that space where our participants can be vulnerable as well. Um, but it's it certainly um, takes a toll on the researcher 
to be in that space with participants while they tell their stories, while we're listening, while we're asking questions. Um, it can be triggering. Um, it can tap into our own memories, our own experiences in ways that we weren't expecting. Um, how did you how did you cope with that aspect of it? Were there things that you you put in place in particular to help yourselves through this process? I think the the work process we had in place actually provided some intrinsic support without intending that. Um, we would have uh, over the course of eighteen months, we had on average six visits to each participant, um, and they were spaced out for the participants' point of view so that they could implement the technology, see how it was working, document that. But also it gave us as a team time to come together and discuss. And I do think that having a large team with many viewpoints and different experiences, prior experiences of people living with dementia, um, and some members of the team had done extensive research with people living with dementia before. I'm not one of them. My area is actually virtual reality and user experience. Um, but having the level of discussion, I think just talking it through with group members, also being at a university, we do have counselling available to staff Last and students. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that, of course, is completely confidential. So, so I, I don't know if the team members made themselves available to that, but it certainly is, is encouraged for us if we need it. Um, yeah. The other thing was setting boundaries, which kind of became impossible in some instances. Uh, if you're working with someone and, and researching with them uh, and they need to talk to you, they need your mobile phone number, they need to be able to text you. Uh, and some of those messages are ones that I will hold dear for a very long time. I'm not deleting those. Um, there, obviously, there's the issue around anonymity and data security and disclosure. Uh, but some of those messages I will anonymise and keep for my purposes because they're really special. And for me, they reflect, uh, and I, I don't want to put a halo around this, this kind of work, but it does reflect the, the significance of good design research. Yeah. There's a, um, like I, I, would, I would strongly advocate for anyone listening to put in place um, a counselling service or access to a counselling service for your design researchers in particular. I think it's good for your entire team um, personally and at, and at Meld Studios um, we've, we've had access to a, um, a, a program for a number of years now for, for everyone and for any reason but I think in particular when you've got people um, out in the field conducting research um, listening to these stories and asking questions in environments and contexts um, and around topics that aren't easy um, and can can trigger reactions irrespective of the of the topic um, and as I say may not always um, be able to predict when and, and where those those uh, triggers will occur but I, I, I would highly recommend having a program in place that allows the staff member anonymously to reach out to those counselors and talk through whatever it was um, that, that's on their minds it's it's an invaluable service and, and it's um, 
we when we were discussing the implementation of it, um, we saw it as as fundamental as you know sort of workplace insurance. Um, it wasn't something that we felt was a, a discretionary item. Once we once we started to get into areas of research that could be difficult, um, you know, moved away from financial services, for example, or moved away from, uh, you know, uh, education services and, and got into areas that were much more personal for people. Um, it, it felt like a really valuable thing. Bridget? Before I joined Swinburne, um, I worked in as a consultant and were, I was involved with the funerals and crematoria industry quite intimately. Okay. For that, certainly, I won't say it set me up for difficult conversations, but I was very aware of that because there was an industry where that is part of practice. That is yes. to have the informal and formal support mechanisms and services available to you. It also gives you, I won't say confidence, but you feel a little clearer about having difficult conversations. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know those are things that we don't always practice and we know that death, the death industry, as it's often referred to, uh, mm-hmm. it's not something that people talk about. And when you are working with people in, in areas of preparation um, to do health, where you know that there are longer-term health issues there, then having that additional sensitivity, I, I don't know that it helped me in particular, but it was knowing that there is a bigger picture around life and, and human mind and human condition that actually allowed some of us to ground ourselves in the work that we were doing with that we, we can really bring our whole selves to this. And it was because of that support and the scoping. So as you said, we're planning that up in the beginning. It really makes a difference. It's a um, it's an area of our practice that I, I do think, um, particularly in the consulting areas and particularly in the sort of the in-house corporate teams um, that have grown up over the last 10 years, I think. Um, I, I, I think in fairness, if I went back a decade, the, the prevalence of design researchers inside corporate Australia would, is fairly thin on the ground. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's an area that we've really tackled well yet as an industry i think once you get outside of places like universities um those sorts of practices of self-care um and staff support are worryingly thin on the ground in in, um in places yeah and from an academic perspective it's not something that is just part of that research process and and your ethics process it's also part of education it's part of supporting emerging designers, emerging practitioners, because I teach in business schools as well as in design. Yeah. So it's ensuring that they get the support in their learning to mm. recognize that these are things that are part of your practice. Yeah. As, a, as a designer, as a researcher, you will come across stuff that is hard and you'll yeah. work what you find you. Uh, and so it's incumbent on us as educators to talk about this stuff. Because otherwise yeah. it's all just you know, fun and sticky notes. I think if if I were in a different industry, I would have much clearer expectations about workplace health and safety and what a safe workplace looked like. Um, you know, 
clear uh, clear warehouse floors and, um, you know, the, the use of cherry pickers rather than climbing up the scaffolding and, and a range of other things, um, you know, harnesses and safety lines and, and these sorts of quite obvious um, marks of a safety culture. Um, what's, the, what's the equivalent inside a design research uh, practice? You know what? What what should you have your eye out for to know that well? This is a place that's that has my health and safety in mind. Um, I, I think I agree with what you said about making sure there is counselling available for um, for the design researchers, as as well as making sure you have. Uh, places you can refer participants to. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly some projects I've been involved with in the past, I mean, it's a bit tangential, but when it comes to OH&S, a lot of it is dependent on what research you're doing at that time. I mean, as I mentioned, I do a lot of research in virtual reality and there's a, a lot of OH&S issues around that, you know, making sure people aren't wandering into the furniture wearing a headset or, or <laughs> experiencing motion sickness, which quite yes. ironically I do get motion sickness and I yeah, do research too. in VR. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's this. And then, of course, there's OHS issues around COVID 19. We had to create um, SOPs for cleaning VR equipment when it comes to actually conducting research with people. I know yeah. the university had to um, stop. Well, our, our research was before COVID 19. So we were going into the home, and that was very important as a way of. Um, seeing how people were implementing these things in their everyday lives because you couldn't really get the answers from lab conditions. But then, of course, with COVID-19, especially with vulnerable populations, yes. Swinburne stopped any home visits. So it would not have been possible to research this in the same way under yeah. um, pandemic conditions. Um, and I would say, you know, from, from a design, from the designer's point of view, of course, you know, there's this, the simple things of making sure uh, everything is ergonomic <laughs> because I, I don't know about you, but I sit at the desk a lot doing uh, the analysis of data and things like that. And um, so as a result, those are conditions as well to think about. Uh, Bridget? I would add that the map is not the territory. And in scoping a piece of research, you start to map it up, but you don't know what the territory is. And therefore, to your point about identifying what are the conditions of that workplace, for me, it's doing what we did with this project scoping it out and then re-scoping it once we actually landed in and being able to understand what we were learning as an emerging practice so that we could unlearn and reconfigure as we went. So we can map it out and say this is where we're going and these are the obstacles that we might have or this is the kind of the hygienic or, or safe environment we work in. But once you get into that process, you realise that that's just a, the map. It doesn't give you all of the nuances uh, and the climatic conditions, for example. Uh, and so I, I would think, apart from there actually being a really good research project in there that I think we should talk to Mel about, uh, I, I think that there is a need for this kind of um, appreciation of the depth of that, that mapping that we put in. The scoping out a research project is not just about the stages that you put down on paper and it, you know, explaining to the client that we'll do this and then that and then that. It's actually the deeper level um, work that happens along the way, which is unpacking who you are in, in this process and then bringing that to that process. 
uh, and it's and, yeah, uncovering as you go and being willing to unlearn and unlearn. Richard, that's a great point for us to end this discussion on. Thank you both so much, Alison and Richard. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing much more about this topic when you speak at Design Research. But for now, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.